Anyone's Game podcast. Following women's football. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Anyone's Game podcast. We have another bonus episode and the final one to go over the final of World Cup 2019. Campbell Finlayson and Chris Marshall joining me again. Good morning, Hiya. good afternoon, evening. Depends what time it is. So, no joke in the scoreline, the final, USA certainly meant business. 2-0 winners over the Netherlands at the Stade de Lyon in front of a capacity crowd of 57,900. We said last week, Chris, that Netherlands had to stop the US scoring early. They did that, but it still wasn't enough. Yeah, they did do that, and they did it for almost an hour. And I think if you think at the start of the game, we talked about it. I think everybody talked about it. I think the phrase 12 minutes is going to go down in, in football folklore at some point for this Women's World Cup. But the Netherlands um, matched up to the USA. The USA came out the quickest um, that they have they have done. And for the first five, ten minutes, it looked a little bit edgy. But I thought the, the, the thing that the Netherlands did that England didn't do, that France didn't do, is they matched up physically really early. So they weren't, they weren't kind of backing off. So they, they were holding their shape well and they were going in for tackles. You had Danielle Van Donk. Um, just doing her thing, but she was out on the right side, which was a bit, a bit different. I thought De Grath and Bloodworth were doing a really good job as well. And just in general, they were in the USA faces. And yeah, at the start, the USA had had obviously the majority of the ball, but I thought the Netherlands started really well. And I think it started to shape up for a really good game because of that. In those sort of first 15, 20 minutes, it was a bit of a surprise to see the way Holland had set up for me and the way they had actually went about that first 15, 20 minutes seemed to be working. And every time they got the ball, they had that opportunity where Berenstein was up front and there just felt like a, maybe a little bit of a danger that Nellids could actually punish the US in the counter-attack. Yeah, I mean, they did well, obviously, to stop the US playing and getting that early goal, as we talked about. But even when they got the ball to like to Bernstein, they were, it was a bit disappointing for me going forward. And they created too much. But that's a lot of teams, obviously, we'd see in England as well. We talked about trying to stop the US playing. The Dutch did have the ball, but the fact they couldn't really create much was always going to make it tough. And the minute, obviously, they did lose the goal, it was a big difference. And the US were more, a lot more comfortable then. But obviously, keeping it until the second half, sorry, before they conceded, did make a big difference. And the Dutch could be proud of it. I think Campbell makes a really good point about um, how disappointing the Dutch were up top. I, I, it's interesting talking about um, the Netherlands in this uh, this tournament because when you look back at kind of players of the tournament and team of the tournament, and, and there's been lots of them obviously doing the rounds in the days since the final, there feels like so many Netherlands players who have maybe not quite lived up to the hype, but yet somehow they've got to the final. And then that makes me think, are the Netherlands going to be disappointed by that? I thought that Leakey Martins looked off the pace. I know she's been carrying us to wins throughout the tournament. She came off, um, obviously, in the semi-final early. Um, I don't think she looked off. Uh, looked up to it. Bierenstein and Vanden Senden, who obviously came on later on, neither I mean, they, they kind of brought a bit of energy, but I don't think they provided that much. And I thought Miedema maybe has a little bit of an attitude check to do at the moment, because, yes, she's obviously got this phenomenal goal-scoring record, but actually... When I looked at what she kind of achieved over the tournament, especially in the final, I think if I'm asking myself honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed in how she's kind of performed. And it's maybe players like Spitzer and Van der Donk and Gronin, the midfield behind the kind of attacking front three that we're also excited about, that have maybe shown that a little bit brighter. 
that was one thing that, that surprised me was the the fact that Miedema started in a bit of a deeper position. Berenstein was more the the sort of arrowhead and focal point up top. It looked like she was doing okay, uh, Miedema. She was playing some quite decent balls through for Berenstein to try and get that counter attack going. Was it something that's actually countered the Dutch's threat by having her so far deep? Because surely she's better when she's up top than in about the box rather than sitting back in the halfway line. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair, but it's a position she's dropped into a couple of times throughout the tournament, so I think it is another sign of how good a footballer she is, the fact that the um, Servegman is very comfortable and they're letting her do that. I think the problem that they lost with, yes, Beanstein could stretch the play, and there was a couple of times she did do that. Um, she got taken out in one instance um, when she was there was a couple of um, US defenders um, providing cover, but she just doesn't have the hold-up play, and I think with the idea that I think the Dutch went into this into the game thinking what everybody thought, they can't let the, the US score early. If they let the US score early, they've got an uphill battle to to really face, and that that would make the game so much more difficult. So I can see the logic behind it, the kind of tactical uh, presentation that was going on in the in the head of Sarah Wiegmann, because Bienenstein would stretch the play, they would in theory get them up the park. I think the problem with that was that Bienenstein just couldn't hold it up enough, so it meant the ball was coming back, especially in the early stages, a little bit too much, but. Saying that, I thought the Dutch did grow into the game, um, especially after they kind of weathered that first 15-20 minutes. So for all the, the attacking talent that the Dutch have, Campbell, one thing that you maybe don't look at so much is the defensive side. So the Dutch do a brilliant job of holding the USA out in that first half and defensively looked quite organised, looked quite strong and taking it to, to 0-0 for half time, put them in a, in a great position. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, Dominic Bloodworth had a great team. The first game was a wee bit shaky, perhaps, but she was playing left-back. was obviously another strange one for not getting forward as much for the Dutch, but they were stopping the US creating. And then, obviously, when she came off towards the end, they were playing three at the back. Sorry, you could see uh, the US getting a lot more space down that right-hand side. But the first half, obviously, they couldn't have kept them out. Stephanie van der Graat, as well, had a great game, apart from the penalty. She was just was unfortunate there, but... I think the Dutch offensively overall in the tournament have been pretty solid and that has helped them because there's a lot of games at the start where I think pretty much every game they were level at half time and then in the second half they were then getting goals to the opposition tired. The defence hadn't maybe been as solid. Some of the games they could easily be behind early on and then you're chasing the game and it does make it a lot more difficult. Could maybe have been, uh, not even reached the final but I think they'd have been very happy to get to half time at 0-0 and it was just unfortunate for them obviously giving away the two goals pretty quickly and obviously the way they lost the first one they'd be disappointed in that. It's slightly harsh on them, obviously, to lose it with a penalty, but I think it was the right decision. Not to be preemptive here, Stuart, but um, obviously the, the big thing about the defence, especially in the last two games, has been Sari van Riendal. One of the things about this game is, yes, the USA had a lot of the ball, but they didn't actually get shot on target until maybe about half an hour in just before that. And then Riendal almost went on kind of one woman crusade to make sure the Dutch did get in at halftime. Um, I think she saved from Megan Rapinoe and uh, Alex Morgan a couple, which was the one she dicked on the post. And I think it was a, a shot from Juliet as well from long range. So there was, there was as, as good as the defence was, and I, I agree with Campbell and Van de Graaff. I thought she was excellent by the penalty, um, especially in the closing stages when the Dutch were chasing it. But Van Riendal was getting a lot of praise, and probably rightly so. We've singled a few Dutch players from the front line through to the defence there and we had to go into the, the subject of Van Veenendaal because, like you said, the, the couple of crosses from Megan Rapino that were then touched on and she's in the right place at the right time to stop them. The Juliet shot as well. And one of the big talking points is that actually domestically she's without a club just now as well, along with Bloodworth. So perfect shot windows, a World Cup final to put in a kind of performance that she did in the first half. 
Yeah, and I'll be interested to see where they, they both end up. I think it's maybe, I don't know I don't know the exact situation in terms of why they both left Arsenal, because they were both at Arsenal, and Arsenal, Arsenal obviously just won the WSL um, and did the double. Um, so I, I'm curious to see what the, the situation was that led to them leaving. But I think when people hear unattached, especially if you're not familiar with women's games, the assumption is it's almost like a, I'm trying to think of a good example from, from recent history in the men's, men's tournaments. But um, it's that kind of idea that she's not wanted. I think she will definitely have attractors, but I'm interested to see where she goes because I think a lot of the big European clubs have got a pretty good keeper at the moment. The only one I thought of, and this is slightly being into the season ahead, it was potentially Barcelona. Uh, Panios is okay, but she doesn't fill me with confidence. And Barcelona are laying down a bit of cash just now to sign players, um, which could be an interesting move for her. But yeah, as you say, no bigger shot window than being man of the match at the World Cup final. It kind of felt like the crowd were getting a bit more behind the Dutch as they were going forward, just heading into injury time. I think Miedema caused a little bit of trouble in the box and there'd also been a couple of boos when Alex Morgan had went down in the box quite softly earlier on and it kind of just felt like from where I was watching as well that all the energy was going towards the, the team in orange. Yeah, I suppose it's the underdog factor to an extent. Um, USA are obviously the establishment. There you go, it is a good Scottish parlance that everybody understands um, when it comes to women's football on a global stage at the moment. So uh, there's definitely a part of that. I think we talked about as well about how the USA know how to manage games, be a bit cynical. You're right, Alex Morgan was getting it tight for um, for going down a little bit too easy, but that's part of the game that when it gets towards the the, the last kind of stages, she excels at and she does very well. So yeah, I think that the field was definitely much pro, well, not pro necessarily in Netherlands, but more the neutral wanted a Netherlands win and probably more just a Netherlands performance to make sure that the final wasn't going to be a walkover or symptomatic of, for example, like the Champions League final is where Leon beat Barcelona 5-0 it was over after 13-15 minutes. So I think there was just a more of a, a willingness to have a good competitive game and to do that you probably wanted to nudge the Dutch on a little bit. So let's move on to the, the main action then, Campbell. Just after the, the hour mark or on the hour mark, there's a bit of a, a team cross going towards the box, takes a bit of deflection from what I remember, and the ball's up in the air, and then Alex Morgan going towards the, the ball. We've got the Dutch defender, I think it was Van der Graaf. She was going to try and swing about it to clear it. Contact's made, goes to VAR again, as, as we all know too well from this tournament. Would you say the right decision was made going by being a stickler for the rules? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, the pair of them are looking to go for the ball, which is very high with it, and obviously, it makes clearly makes the contact with Morgan. So I don't actually have too many complaints about the penalty. Obviously, the Dutch will be quite disappointed themselves that that's how they've went behind. But I don't think the decision was wrong, and it's a great penalty from the penal to give the US a lead. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it was a penalty. I thought one of the interesting things that cropped up in the kind of analysis post-match and during the game as well, was the idea that Alex Morgan did well to get in front of her to then be in a position to for Van der Graaf to have her foot on Alex Morgan. And it's one of those it's one of those things that we've just talked about. She's good at actually playing the game. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately for Van der Graaf, she, she kind of knew. Initially, it was a bit iffy as to what happened in VAR. And by the way, this was a perfect example of how VAR should work. The referee was blindsided by it, so she couldn't properly see the call was quick. She went and watched the video. The decision was quick and the right outcome was reached. So that that is like in a utopian world where VAR has to exist, which it is. And we've maybe discussed a little bit about that later on as well. That was almost like the perfect application and to do it in a World Cup final. That's probably the biggest audience it's going to have had this whole tournament. So that will probably be a wee sneaky checkpoint that FIFA will be pleased with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of decisions in the tournament where we've seen it on the TV and you've right away you've went, right, that's the decision. 
go and give it. But the referees, for whatever reason, have stood there and they've watched it for two, three, four minutes, I think. And is there really any point in being there as long as you have been? Whereas the referee, obviously, on Sunday was right across, just saw what you needed to see and gave the decision, I think. Something that does really come down to the referee and how long they look at it. Obviously, the referee here hasn't seen anything. And the first time she's then seen it, it's just a little penalty. But there's been a lot of decisions, as I say, I feel that the referee might have just even been in their head of thought, right, this is what I think originally. Then I went to see it and thought, I don't really want to change my mind, but I kind of have to. I think if, they just, if the referee just watch it and decide on it from the point of view, is, is it a foul, is it a handball, and just give it, things would be a lot quicker. And I think people would then maybe sort of be more in favour of that than you've seen a lot of folk being so far. Megan Rapino sticks it away. US go one up just after the hour mark. One thing, Chris, you mentioned just um, on an earlier question was just how physical and how Netherlands were doing in the first half. Did you have any sort of thoughts that maybe that goal tired Netherlands after their their long semi-final when the goal just took the sting out of any possible threat they had a little bit? I think what you saw is you saw the Netherlands go to bits a little bit. They had that that, that kind of spell just after the, the penalty where obviously USA with momentum, one goal up, uh, with the experience of obviously getting the job done. I think you did see a kind of a little drop in the Netherlands. And I think there was maybe, and Sarah Beekman has been um, praised a lot for her tactics, and I think she has done a lot of things right. But you could see that watching it on the telly that the, the levels had dropped a little bit. And I actually think what happened was the second USA goal, which was scored by Rose Lavelle, which was a wonderful goal, but it was also... I think, uh, a result of the tiredness in the Netherlands team. And I think she was a little bit slow in making the sub to kind of get a bit of freshness on. Um, Jill Ruard came on after the second goal was scored. And I think if she'd come in a little bit earlier, at least would have either stopped the momentum, but maybe just added a little bit of extra impetus because there were some players that did feel like they were being passengers, especially at the top end of the park. It was only about seven, eight minutes later from the penalty that Lavelle picks the ball up in the middle of the park, launches herself through the middle, it was a brilliant individual goal, Campbell, and kind of rubber stamped it. Yeah, the second goal killed it off. I mean, Roosevelt, as you say, it's a great fan. It's a great, uh, great run, great finish, but she's been impressive in the US in a lot of uh, tournament. Obviously, you're looking at the players like Morgan Rapino, Heath Press, they've been the ones in the forward areas, but Roosevelt in mind, still very young as well, obviously, about 19, I want to say, but she's she's in a really good tournament, and it's it shows that there is a, a brighter future there for the US as well, even behind big players that they've had that have been there at the top of the game for so long. So it's a great goal and it killed the game off, but it's also positive for them looking ahead. Just on Roosevelt, she's, she's 24 actually, Campbell, and the reason why I wanted to, yeah, not, not to call you out on it for a, for a negative reason, but the reason why I call it out is I think it just shows where the USA are just now. The fact that a player like Roosevelt can almost ease herself into a team like that at that age, whereas you would think if she was, for argument's sake, Scottish, she would be in that team a lot earlier. So I think it just goes to show the quality and depth that that, that USA team have. But as you're quite right to say, she's been excellent throughout the tournament and in that in that USA side. She's not necessarily gone unsung because I think a lot of people who've been watching it have been aware of how good she is. But when you think about a lot of the fanfare that's gone around, people like Alex Morgan, Megan Rapino, um, she's, she's maybe gone under the radar. And maybe that's part of the, the experience fact that these players bring and maybe that is part of their job. I don't know, that's kind of speculating, but maybe taking the heat off players like Leia Roosevelt um, is actually part of what makes Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe stand out as, as footballers. It did start to worry a little bit because although there was only 20 minutes left in the final, it did start to feel like the USA could probably get whatever number they wanted. There was a few opportunities where Holland have to throw bodies forward and then I remember specifically there was Heath having a chance to make it three. She just kind of lost her, her footing in the box. I think Morgan had a chance after that. Van Venendaal having to be alert the whole 90 minutes. 
Yeah, I had that bit of a worry as well, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, what happened, when the Netherlands made the substitutions after going two down, they, they totally lost their shape. They, they brought in Ruhr, who has had an impact. It's interesting to see that how she's maybe only been used sparingly, I think. And then Van der Senden came on, obviously, with the same same kind of notion of, of stretching the game. But they totally, they totally changed their shape because they took Decker off and they didn't really readjust their defence. So what you were having is, as you say, uh, opportunities for USA on the counter almost every couple every minute. Um, you had, uh, as you say, you had Alex Morgan um, and you had Tobin Heath. But it comes back to what me and Campbell were speaking about earlier on, and that's Stephanie Van der Graaff. And if you that last ten minutes, she had at least four last ditch tackles to to stop the USA getting a shot off or to block a shot. Um, so it, is, it does feel a shame that she was the one that kind of conceded the penalty. But it never it never felt after that second goal. One or two things were going to happen. Either the USA were going to go rampant, and I think what happened was the Netherlands managed to hold them off just long enough for that to be the case. And so what happened was the game didn't peter out exactly, but the Netherlands never really looked like they were going to get back into it. Holland started to pose a little bit more of a threat and get a bit more joy around the US boxes. The minutes started to tick away, but the five minutes additional time didn't make much of a difference, and it finished 2 0. Yeah, I mean, as Chris pointed out earlier on, they were very tired by this point. Drink extra time um, in some of the previous games helped them at all against uh, Sweden, sorry, in the semi-final. So that was all going to make it tougher against the US, especially if the USA had played the night before, so they had an extra day's rest. They get that half an hour difference. And then obviously when you get 2 nothing up, you're just playing for time. And they've done it. The US had done it brilliantly well against France and England. So there was never really too much of a threat in the Dutch when they get back into the game. And in the end, they didn't threaten a bit more, but didn't cause enough to get back into the game. And the US were obviously worthy winning. A lot has been said of the 2019 Women's World Cup finals, Chris, and what it would do for the women's game and for women's sport in general. As a final, as a spectacle as well, did it reach your expectations, although the US are, are winners again for a fourth time? I think it did. I think it was, a, especially the first half, I think once the USA scored the second goal, the an air of inevitability they kind of came into effect. But I actually thought it's a spectacle. Um, I think you had two good sets of fans. We've talked about how those fans are, and then that's a different conversation. But in terms of generating atmosphere, you had two great sets of fans. The Dutch have been much lauded for the, the following of their team, and the USA travelling so many numbers because of the success that they have. So I think in terms of a spectacle, I think that's probably as good as it was going to get without France being there, I think I think it's probably fair to say. And yeah, I thought it was a really good match. I thought it was actually, you saw good football. It wasn't scrappy. It wasn't nervous. I think actually what, what really helped this was it was two teams that had experience of winning. Um, and I know that seems a bit mad, but as, as we've talked about before, the Netherlands won the Euros in 2017. And I think the fact that both of these teams had experience of winning the big one um, meant that their air of edginess, that say, for example, if it had been an England-Netherlands final, might have gone. Um, so, yeah, I, I think as a spectacle, it did, a, it did a really good job. I was actually kind of at the end of it. I was looking in there going, yeah, people will, be, people will be pleased that's been their kind of showpiece event for one billion plus people to, to watch on, on Sunday afternoon. wanted to give a little mention to the Scottish representation at the final as well, because I don't know if you saw the two saltires at the top left corner flag throughout the game. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I thought you were going to make mention of the fact that Jill Ellis's mum, Gran, is from Scotland. And she phoned her on the pitch. I think that was the chat. I can't remember exactly. There's definitely a Scottish relative somewhere to do with Jill Ellis's um, genetics. So, yeah, we'll claim that one. I did notice them. There's always a salt tyre everywhere you go. It doesn't matter who's playing. There's always someone there. But, yeah, they're noticed the two. She's said, the words of corner flag and seen folk stories on Instagram and things like that as well. There's other, other Scottish representatives there. So that's always good as well. 
it's always a little novelty and something that makes you smile as a as a Scottish supporter watching a game. Eh? Looking looking at the winners USA, we've, we've analysed the match there. Is it easy to say, albeit in hindsight, that it did feel like the writing was kind of on the wall for the US to go and win it again throughout the whole tournament? Yeah, I mean, it's, they're, all, they're always favourites to win these things. The number one team, and to say when they're beating the two seeds nearest to them in England and France, the Germans had got themselves knocked out already for Sweden. They were always huge favourites against the Dutch. Obviously, they were a bit tired too, but I mean, obviously, everyone always wants someone else to do well, but I mean, watching that US team, you really just have to applaud them because some of the stuff they play is great and they were very worthy winners in the end. I think the Spain game was a really big one for the USA in terms of how they progress into tournament. If they'd been given a bit of a gimme, like, say, for example, uh, a Nigeria, for example, just as an example, sector Cameroon, even at that, for that extent, um, I think it would have meant when they came up uh, against their first proper challenge that they might have been a little bit behind. But I think actually that, that Spain test that they maybe weren't expecting, I think they probably expected to go go over Spain pretty comfortably. I think that really helped in them kind of grow into the tournament. But as Campbell says... As much as you want to say, no, I never saw it coming, or as good as it is to say throughout the tournament, and I know I did it, and we've all done it, we've all said, nah, the US are going to get beat this time. There was that kind of relentless inevitability that come the final, yeah, they, they were probably going to win it, and they're, they're worthy winners, whether you like how they celebrate, whether you like how they play, whether you like how the fans act. None of that matters. They're the best football team, women's football team in the world at the moment, and they are quite rightly four-time world champions. I think it's probably a good point to just kind of round things up in this match with just going into a couple of the stats and, and the individual awards that were given after the game. So a lot being made over here that the US have scored 26 goals um, at this World Cup, which is the most by a single team in the, the competition's history for a single tournament. But the 13 on the their opener went a big way towards that, so it might not mean all too much. I mean, I, the thing I would say is the idea of having smaller goals has completely disappeared over the course of the tournament after some of the the goalkeeping displays finally uh, full stopped by Van Vierendaal in the final. So, yeah, I think yeah, it's 26 goals, but 13 in one game, the game is a bit of a freak result. I think actually if we played that game again, that, that score would never happen. So, yeah, um, cool stat. Probably won't get beaten, I think. Um, well, it depends if the, the plans to expand the World Cup come to fruition. It might, but yeah, twenty six goals is a pretty pretty tasty return. On stopping goals, Campbell, uh, Chris has just mentioned there about Van Vienendaal. She actually made, made the most saves for a, for a knockout game at this tournament in that final, right at the end, and rightfully so. Would you say getting the the Golden Glove award from FIFA? I think from our performances towards the end of the tournament, yes. But as much as Chris has talked about the goals getting smaller and things, the, there wasn't really many goalkeepers who could slate too much. And there were a couple a lot of the performances from keepers were pretty solid, even from the likes of Endler at uh, Chile. Even though they get knocked out, she had a couple of great games as well. And some of the other uh, goalkeepers, as I say, overall were pretty good. So, but Benendal, Ivan Benendal, I think, was deservedly given it, mainly due to performances in the games that mattered after the group stages. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that was a right call as well. I think up until that point, uh, the other call keeper I wanted to call it was uh, Giuliani Atley. I thought she was really good almost um, throughout the tournament. Maybe one of the un- underrated reasons as to why they did so well. And obviously, uh, Lindahl for Sweden, she was excellent um, all the way through. Uh, and she's another goalkeeper that was available in a free transfer. So if you want, if you're wanting to just have a really good women's goalkeeper kicking about your house, they're available at the moment. So man in. But yeah, I think. I'm so glad that the goalkeeper has been so good because any time we speak, and you two will know this, anybody who's listened to this probably likes women's football, so will be listening to this as well will know this. Any time you talk about women's football, 
the first thing they go is, oh, the goalkeeping's a bit rubbish. And actually, in this World Cup, I think the goalkeeping has maybe been one of the standout traits of this World Cup when you're going to look back at this over time. FIFA Young Player Award went to Julia Gwynn of Germany. I really enjoyed watching Julia Gwynn, obviously. I mean, the opening game, she had the great goal she scored against Spain as well. She was one of Germany's main forces, sorry, in that game. And again, against South Africa, obviously, Germany as a whole were a bit disappointing. Against Sweden, getting knocked out. But I think Gwynn overall played well in the tournament. And there's not many players I can think of at the minute off the top of my head that really could have challenged us. Yeah, I'd agree with Campbell. I actually can't think of anybody that, other than that Gwen, that maybe had that impact on their team throughout the tournament. There was like wee cameos from players, but yeah, I think I think that's probably a fair shout. And then Megan Rapinoe, who is going home with a golden ball and a golden boot. She's been a standout for for this World Cup in more ways than one, not just on the pitch, but it kind of feels like it was in a way her tournament and she was a predominant name the whole way through, it felt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the important thing, and this is something that's really important to understand, is you can have your opinion on how Megan Rapinoe is, is going about what she's doing. Personally, I think somebody needs to do that, and there will be pluses and minuses to her approach. But at the end of the day, she is a high, high-quality footballer, and she demonstrated that throughout that tournament, whether it be in pressure situations, whether it be creating assists, whether it be scoring goals. She won the golden ball and golden boot because she scored the most goals, and she assisted her teammates in scoring those goals. So she's a fantastic footballer. She's I, I was listening to something and we were talking about the stage of the career that Megan Rapinoe's at now. She's obviously 34 at the moment. So probably, you'd never say never, because uh, we know about the longevity of women's football. But she's probably played at her last World Cup. So this was her kind of this was her chance to be her, her kind of her moment, almost like her, her wambak moment, or for want of a better term. So yeah, I think everything she's done to kind of drag the USA along, and she has at some points think's been great and yeah I didn't have any debate about her as player of the tournament I, I kind of tried to argue myself into a corner for other players but I couldn't at the end of the day you come back to her I think Chris subs it up perfectly I mean there's obviously every team had a player that stood out for them but as, as a whole in the course of the tournament Rapino was there in pretty much every game that she played obviously she was resting in the semi-final and Kristen Press came in and did really well for uh, the US but she had a great tournament as Chris says and is there really anyone that was better Probably not, and I think the stats prove that. Just to round off the awards, the host France also got the the Fair Play Award for their disciplinary record. Not that that will count for too much, but a nice little gesture after hosting quite a fantastic tournament. Cameroon not get that. <laughs> I think maybe Phil Neville was given the award out. <laughs> can Can I just make one? They obviously did a, a team of the tournament at the end of it, and um, everybody's favourite Kamikaze centre half managed to get into it, which is where Wendy Renard. So. Um, it was good to see that playing to the home crowd still matters at major tournament, even if it's if it's a male or women's team. So that was good to see. So it would be wrong not to touch on Saturday's game as well. We had a, a double header of action over the weekend with the third place match between Sweden and England taking place on the Saturday as well. It was a, a feisty start to this one. We mentioned in the last podcast that when Sweden and England meet internationally, they're always really entertaining games and it got off to an entertaining start this one. Yeah, it certainly did. I was actually, I mean, I wasn't able to sit and watch the game fully, but every time I turned around, I seen him miss a goal in the early stages, which was pretty disappointing from my point of view. But I haven't seen them back again at the time. It was, it was one of these games that really just began brightly, and both of the teams didn't tire as such. But it kind of, it's gone to the end of a tournament, and the second half it sort of slowed down slightly. But obviously, it's a great start from them. Sweden, the goal they got from Kosovarias Lani, it was a horrendous mistake from Alex Greenwood, but she finished it well. The second goal is just fantastic finish from uh, Sofia ja- uh, Jakobsen. And then again from Lucy Bronze. And I think it was three very, very good goals to get the game underway. It's a very harsh handball as well. 
I think I want to say on um, Ellen White but England's goal that was disallowed but it was a great start to the third place game and it shows people that it isn't just a pointless match there is a point to it and you can see that as well from the Swedish celebrations at the end Yeah, sealing third place at a major tournament like a, a World Cup and, and what was being dubbed as such a big tournament Chris is, is a massive title and a massive achievement for Sweden to take home it really is, and you saw that in Gothenburg when they had their, their kind of welcome home celebrations and the, the place was absolutely rammed. And it does make, and I think this is probably puts a, we've talked about England and, and Phil Neville and how, but do you know what, in the general we've been pretty content with how they've gone about their business, but I thought Phil Neville's idea of it calling it nonsense afterwards kind of put a, put a wee black mark against his, how he's kind of been perceiving this tournament for me because... The third place game, and I think this is another thing that I've spent a little bit of time explaining to people who have been interested, and people are more interested in it, um, is a big deal at the Women's World Cup. And you saw that at the end of the celebrations, and as I said, you saw it uh, when they returned home. I think they actually returned home today when I was looking at it. Um, and you saw the, the celebrations for that, so absolutely. And I think Sweden were probably value for it. Um, I think Campbell's right. The, the, the Ellen White goal um, was super harsh. Like, I don't, it is. It's obviously, I think what Ellen, because Ellen White was so indignant, she was like, a ref, she actually explained it, said it hit her body and then hit onto my arm. So I thought she was really unlucky in that respect. But um, I kind of wrote speeding off a little bit before this game. I thought they would be done, especially after the, the Netherlands game and Asalani going off. But luckily she was fit and uh, she's a player I really rate. Um, I didn't have a great spell in England when she played for Manchester City, but she is a top player and I think... At the end of the day, Sweden had that little bit extra. There was a, a couple of chances as well. Um, I think Fisher cleared one off the line. Uh, but yeah, I thought Sweden were good value for it. I watched it all back. I saw most of it live. And then I watched it the kind of start and end that I'd missed. But yeah, yeah, good goal from England. Frank Kirby, who I thought was a little bit disappointing throughout the tournament. I think maybe that's another thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about how England have been uh, in this tournament. I think maybe some of the players haven't quite stepped up as maybe they would have wanted to. Surely England should have been aware of the threat from Jakobsen at the start of that. Like she cut the ball so much on the right side and it just seemed like they weren't really prepared. I think England have just struggled to get the the mix right. Now, I don't know if it's tactically or personnel, but you're right. Jakobsen has that has been almost Sweden's um, default position when they're struggling is get the ball to Jakobsen and let her run. Um, and you saw England against the USA struggle and I thought they... They struggled a little bit against Norway with uh, Karen Hansen. So I think that was maybe just, if you're looking at back on that as a learning exercise, if you're an England fan or an England coach, for, Neville, for that matter, I think you need to try and fix that that defensive puzzle because I don't think they've quite, quite got it sussed yet. I think, as you say, that was showed out, bore out at the start. I think teams are clicking onto that, especially good teams who have players like Jakobsen that can take advantage. The goal, Campbell, from, from Ellen White, bringing it up again, stickler for the rules. With the way VARs went throughout this tournament, surely it's not much a surprise it was ruled out because the way the handball rules existed throughout, how strict the, the officials have had to be on the, the goal line rule with the goalkeepers at penalties as well, it gives it a bit of an advantage to take the ball into our path and, and get that finish, no? I'm going to shock you here and I'm going to actually disagree for a change, Stuart. I don't think Ellen White has really done anything to give herself an advantage. Either hits an arm, but also has the defender's arm, I think, looking at it, or it comes very close to doing it, at least. The ball is sort of, Ellen White's arm is stuck right against her body. It's not making her body bigger to gain an advantage, whatever the rule says it has to be now. So I think it's extremely harsh on her and England. It's a hard one to, to judge. I'm with Campbell. I think that's pretty harsh, uh, to be honest with you. I don't I don't quite see how where her arm goes. Unless she, she wasn't batting it down or anything like that. It was part of the tussle to get to, get to the ball. So I thought it was a little bit harsh. Yes, as you say, if you want to be stickler for a rule, there's a hand there and it 
helps get her the ball. So yeah, maybe maybe it should have been ruled out. But I thought that by the end of the tournament, VAR had gone back to, and this is something that me and Campbell know a fair bit about from watching other leagues around the world. Um, I thought VAR had started to look more and more at home in the tournament, uh, as much as some people hate the concept of it. So yes or no, has it been a, a success? By the end of the World Cup, has it been a success? Yes. Yeah. And I think I think your uh, your argument to say yes it has been is the penalty that was given in the final. Um, I know that's one example, but if you're asking for uh, an example of it working well and the 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 application of the tool and the tool itself working to its optimum, then that's it. I think in La Liga last year, just to give a bit of context, I think it was ninety eight percent accuracy you came away with using VAR, whereas that had been down at ninety the, the year before. So it improves the game. I I look with some hilarity as it get, enters some of the, the bigger, more talky leagues in the world uh, this summer. And remember, whether you disagree or you agree that it has been or has not been a success at the World Cup VAR, then get in touch with anyone's game on Twitter and we'll be happy to hear your opinion. Just looking back as, as well over the World Cup as a whole, do, do either of you have a highlight you'd like to bring up or something that, that stood out that, that you'll take away from Women's World Cup 2019 in France? Scotland-Argentina game for me, mainly because it was my first experience of a World Cup. The elation, really, it's seen Scotland being 3-0 up and cruising in a game against one of the main sides in the world, when you think of football, maybe not the women's game as much, to then just the sheer sort of amusement at the fact that 15 minutes later it was 3-3 and being surrounded by some happy Argentines and some Chinese folk who found everything hilarious and some really amused French people. It was, it was a weird experience, but it's one that I'll certainly not forget. Yeah, I think I've got to say Scotland as well. Um, seeing Lana Clellan score that goal, yes, ultimately Japan got beat to win. But um, I am in my early thirties, so I remember France '98. I remember watching it. I remember thinking it'd be so cool when I'm older to get to go to a World Cup when Scotland are there. And uh, 21 years later, it finally happened, and it was great. So yeah, let's let's spin it back to Scotland. I think I think that is definitely the highlight. Outside of that. I just, I just generally do think that the goalkeeping's been a big highlight, and I think what the coverage has has done, not necessarily the coverage by the the channels itself, but just the the narrative shift for women's football, I think can only be a good thing going forward. And just one thing we spoke about before we got into the cordon and post match from the from the final was the legacy effect of the Women's World Cup 2019. It's been very well covered. It's been a talking point the whole way throughout. It, for me, for us that have a, a, a big supporters of women's football and have a, a high interest and investment in, in the work we do, what do you see from the legacy of the tournament overall? I think it's going to be really uh, impressive. You can even just see Sweden returning home and the thousands of people decked out in yellow there in Gothenburg. Obviously, the big Dutch crowd that were through there uh, watching the tournament, obviously. Um, the WSL announcing Manchester City, it's Manchester United and Chelsea Tottenham to be played at they had in Stamford Bridge. The Man City game to be televised, obviously, there as well. A lot of players that have been at the World Cup you've seen now moving even since uh, the tournament's finished and during the tournament, obviously Nikita Paris going to Lyon's one, Barcelona signing Jenny Hermosa's another one, they're Ingrid Engen from Norway's away to Wolfsburg, Julia went to Bayern I mean, there's a lot of players that are moving as well and a lot of girls that seem, young girls that seem to be really looking forward to following their heroes and growing up, you see a lot of people with that on Twitter and things, so I think just overall it's been, it's been great and it's been probably the World Cup that has been focused on the most in terms of the women's game. And I just think the whole thing is growing. You can even see that in Scotland, the fact there's now people taking an interest during the World Cup, maybe a bit less so than now it's finished, which is slightly disappointing. But hopefully it will grow 
and obviously Fuzz at the SWPL game, sorry, and folk like SWF covering it. Scotland playing their games in Paisley. We need to see more crowds, bigger crowds turning up, and I think it should be really good for the women's game across the globe. I think, um, yes, I agree with a lot of that. Uh, but I think I think we need to temper it a little bit because what history has shown is people get really excited and invested in something in that moment. And that's not limited to women's football. That's, that's a, a fact of life. When you're living in that moment, um, you're, you're more excited for it. Um, Campbell's right. I think that the 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 fact that the Manchester Derby is going to be well uh, well shown on the television and they're playing it in the Etihad, um, and Chelsea Tottenham are going to be playing it at Stamford Bridge is good. But I would also say that getting people in for free doesn't really add any value to the game, and it just sets an expectation. Is that that's what you do? So the Manchester Derby seven quid. I should be clear on that. But Chelsea Tottenham's uh, is free. Um, I think it's about making sure that the momentum doesn't die. So. At the moment, we are in the mid-season break in Scotland. Um, Scotland are out of the World Cup a, a couple of weeks ago now. It feels feels like it was just yesterday or a lifetime ago, depending on how you, how you feel about it. Um, and I think it's important the momentum is continued. So at the SWPL, we've obviously been doing the team of the, team of the season so far to make sure we get player recognition out there and, and get faces known. We, Scotland are hosting the European Under-19 Championships. We've talked about this already on the podcast, but I'm going to keep talking about it because it's in Scotland. It's Well, as time of recording, it starts on the 16th of July in the tournament. Uh, Scotland are in it. It'll be full of home-based players. You'll also get to see the best of European young talent. And it's cheap. I think it's £2 and £1 to get in for most of the game. I think the final's a little bit more. Um, so I think it's important to keep that momentum going. I was quite harsh in the last podcast. I think so much so that Andrew decided to start snipping it and sending out his tweets um, about how how Scottish women's football takes advantage of this and how I was concerned that it hadn't been happening. Uh, stuff has been happening since then. We've also had the announcement from Rangers pretty recently that they are now fully integrating the women's side into the men's side. Um, that can only be a good step. Amy McDonald, who has been the coach at Rangers for a long time and um, I don't know how much how much this you've spoke to Amy before, but at the times I've interviewed her, she is incredibly passionate about women's football, um, and she's also very honest. So I think that her her ascension into a kind of overseeing role and the bringing in of Gregory Vignal as head coach, which is interesting in itself. Who would have thought Gregory Vignal would be the Rangers women's coach in 2019? Um, is all good. And you've have you have obviously Hibs are playing in Europe as well. You've got the league coming back on the 4th of August. I think what's really important it's not just incumbent on the clubs or the SWPL or Scottish women's football, it's incumbent on everybody to make sure it stays in the consciousness. And as we were talking about just before uh, the, the record there, uh, as it stands just now, you cannot watch the Euro Under 19s um, on any television channel or internet stream. Um, Spain, who are in the tournament, have got coverage. France have got coverage. Austria and Germany have got coverage. Um, so we're hosting the tournament and we're already behind the eight ball. I think the thing that I want to see is just everybody just turn it up a notch uh, and really push to see what we can achieve because there's absolutely no reason why Scottish women's football shouldn't be as strong as it possibly could be and it could be even bigger than, than the men's game in, in context when you think about where, where the two organisations are in a European world context at the moment. I mean, there's plenty to see. It's obviously just a case of whether it's going to happen. Obviously, it's not going to happen overnight, but... Glasgow City and Hibs have been the dominant teams in Scottish football over the last few years. You'd like to see the likes of Rangers and Celtic because they're obviously they're massive clubs across the world, so the teams are known. It'd be good to see when Rangers obviously making the steps just now. Celtic said they were last year, although not much has really happened in that front. But these sort of teams beginning to challenge City and Hibs over the coming years. People actually were logging across to watch the national side at the World Cup. 
you'd like to see a lot do the same with the under-19s, not just the Scotland games, other games as well, although, I mean, the fact that a lot of games are played at the same time doesn't exactly help, but there's some nice stadiums that have been played in, so you'd like to see people going to watch them. Most people even going to watch the domestic games. The SWPL is advertised brilliantly online and things, but you would like to see a bit more of it perhaps on the news, and obviously it's, it's not easy, it's not going to happen right now, but in time, you'd like to see sort of more advertisement again, just hopefully people go even through word of mouth, because the prices aren't bad, and you see some of the stuff you're going to see, some of the football is a lot, is very good, sorry, so I mean, just more people to go and watch it, and just hopefully the game will grow, and more people will be intrigued to go and watch women's football on a Sunday, having seen the national side out in France. Yeah, so the, the SWPL isn't quite back just yet. Starting on Tuesday the 16th of July, it's the Women's Under-19 Championships on home soil in Scotland from the 16th of July through to the final on Sunday the 28th of July. Scotland against France on the 16th of July, half past seven, St Mirren Park, Paisley. Friday 19th of July, Scotland play Norway, 6.15 at Firhill Stadium in Glasgow. And then on the 22nd of July, Netherlands, Scotland, 6.15 at St Mirren Park and Paisley again as well. Tickets are available on the Scottish FA website. Although the World Cup for 2019 in France is over, we still want your opinion, so we'd love to hear from you. VAR, was it a success? Yes or no, and why? What's been your highlight from the FIFA Women's World Cup 2019? And what legacy would you like to see for the tournament in the Scottish domestic game moving forward? Campbell, Chris, anything you'd like to say finally before we go? Oh, he's done that thing again where he's asked us both at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think the only thing I would say is if anybody, uh, when the, 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 the programme goes out, the podcast goes out, um, our names are always attached to it. So if you've ever got a question about women's football that you are not sure about and you don't want to put it in a public forum, just drop me a, a, a DM on Twitter. I'm happy with that. I'm more than happy to answer questions. I did a World Cup sweepstake um, for the first time. We've never done a women's one before. I've now hooked up to people with tickets for one of the upcoming games. So yeah, just, just ask a question and I'll, I will be more than happy to help. No, sorry, the same goes there, of course. Not just um, myself and Chris, obviously Stuart as well, covering a lot more games, even the official official channels at SWF, SWPL, just get in touch with people, just ask the questions, folk will be happy to answer them. Get in touch with anyone's game with your opinion on VAR, was it a success, yes or no, and why? What was your highlight from World Cup 2019, and what legacy would you like to see from this tournament moving forward in the Scottish domestic women's game as well? And as you've just heard, you could slide into Chris Campbell or my own DMs on Twitter with any questions if you don't want it in the public eye as well. So we hope you've enjoyed listening to the World Cup Review podcast. Chris, I'll let you say goodbye first. Au revoir. And Campbell. Goodbye. And goodbye from me too. Thanks for listening. You are listening to the Anyone's Game podcast. For advertising inquiries, email agpodcast at yahoo.com.